the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Your call will never be evidenced by your great talent. You called us as your own. You brought us to your phone. It'll be shown in a heart that looks up, that trusts God's timing, and walks humbly with Him. We long for you And if this isn't your heart, then let God break you so it can be. Because then you can fulfill His call for your life. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. Last time in Exodus chapter 2, Moses was the right person for the task, but he acted in the wrong time. Moses killed an Egyptian and considered himself to be the deliverer of the Israelites. He soon found that he was mistaken and ran away for fear that he would be caught and thrown in jail for murder. He ran away as far as the land of Midian. Here we join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15. But the question is, is where does a fugitive go when you're a member of the royal family? You know, I mean, you're kind of easily recognizable. How do you keep that hidden? And where do you go? Well, you know where you go? You go as far away as possible. And Moses went all the way to the land, the Bible says, of Midian. Now, the Midianites were nomadic tribes who lived, uh, who dwelt in what we would call modern-day Saudi Arabia, some of the United Arab Emirates, that Yemen and those places down in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula there in the Middle East. But some of them had migrated to the southeastern part of the Sinai Peninsula. That would be, if you look at your map, you've got, you've got you know, Saudi Arabia here, and then you've got the Gulf of Aqaba, then the Sinai Peninsula, then the Red Sea, or the Gulf of Suez these days, and then you have Egypt. Many of these Midianites migrated over the Gulf of Aquaba into the Sinai Peninsula in the southeastern part of that region. These were shepherds for the most part, so many ancient wells for their flocks have been discovered in this region. And it's at one of these wells that Moses finally stops running. Now, you can add up the miles. I, I didn't add them up, but I've done it in the past. That's, that's a long trip. That's a long way to go. It tells you just how frightened he was. Moses' primary concern up to that point when he sits down at the well was escaping execution, getting as far away from Egyptian influence as possible. I don't know if he stopped at other places. I don't know if he joined caravans. We have no clue. But the language implies is that he finally thinks he's far enough away that he can stop running, that he's done running. Now, if that's the case, I would imagine this afforded him the first chance to really soak in what had happened to him. I imagine the reality that his old life was gone started to set in. You're never going to be rich again, Moses. You're never going to live a posh life. You're never never going to have that life again. That life is gone. You are a fugitive. I also imagine that that thought was soon followed by doubt and confusion. He'd been convinced his position in Egypt was evidence that God chose him to deliver his people from slavery. But that was all gone now. And so that dream is gone too. How on earth am I going to deliver people? And now I'm, I'm, here, I'm running you know, for my life. I have nothing. I have no one. I'm, I'm sitting here at a well in the middle of nowhere. And I imagine he probably wondered, if, had I heard God wrong? God, what is the purpose of my life? And you know, Moses won't return to this plan for his life for 40 years. 40 years till chap- the events of chapter 3. 
And I don't know if Moses realized how proud he was to think he'd figured out all the reasons why God chose him or if he thought he failed and God had rejected him because of committing murder. I don't know any of that, but I do know this. The man that meets God at that burning bush is a way different man than the one who murdered that Egyptian. Way different. Something happened in those 40 years. And let me tell you this. Moses jumping the gun was not part of God's plan. Moses murdering the Egyptian was not part of God's plan. But Moses being broken was. His time here in the desert, his education here being broken, was part of God's plan. Moses, like anyone God calls to lead, had to be broken. To be a good leader in a job of this magnitude, Moses had to be shattered absolutely shattered. And maybe you've had a past failure, or maybe you've misjudged God's timing and you jumped the gun in your pride. Maybe you weren't ready yet and you had a moral failure. Listen, none of that negates God's call in your life. None of that negates God's plan for your life. It simply means this, you need to be broken still. And you're in the process right now of being broken so that when the time is right, you will be ready. I want to encourage you tonight, if this is you, you think, well, that's what I did. I murdered the Egyptian, not literally, but you know, I did that. I jumped the gun. You know, if you did, I, mean, I need to report you, but the idea of just jumping the gun and having an area where you failed, you totally blew it. If that's you, listen, don't let the enemy condemn you. Take it to the Lord. Ask him to forgive you and then let him have his way. Let him crush your pride, even though it's painful, because what will emerge from that process is a man or a woman who can move in God's omnipotent power and succeed at the task that he sets before you. You know, I, I tell people at times, they say, I feel God's got a call in my life. And I say, really? They say, okay, well, you ready to be broken? What do you mean? Well, God can't use a man or a woman he hasn't broken. He doesn't. You look through it, the entire scripture, he never uses a man he hasn't broken. He never uses a woman he hasn't broken. You have to be shattered. All the pride, all, the, all those things, that the reasons you think that you could do his work, he has to totally break you of it. <laughs> So that when you come to him, you go, God, I've got nothing. All I've got is myself. And the Lord says, good, I can fill that. I can fill that. See, I chose you. I didn't choose you because of anything in you. I chose you because I just, that's what I want to do. I love you and you're my guy. You're my gal. But I need to fill you. You can't be filled with you anymore. I need to fill you. Well, while he's there at the well, something interesting happens. Verse 16, God isn't through with him. It says, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and they drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Now, the Midianites did not have a fixed deity they worshiped. When you look at them, they've got all sorts of pagan gods they worshiped. But by all appearances, this man, as we get to know him, seems to be someone who worshiped the one true God. Now, we know that he was a descendant of Abraham through Keturah. So it's not unlikely that he would know about Yahweh or Jehovah, the one true God. But however it was that he came about to that, he seems to be a follower of God Almighty. And so we'll learn more about him as time goes by. But it mentions here that this guy had seven daughters. No mention of sons. That's a lot of estrogen. <laughs> In one tent. Well, they came and they drew water. And it says they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. So here we meet this guy's seven daughters. And again, it's possible this was their role in the family business, but it's more likely he either didn't have any sons or he didn't have sons that were old enough to oversee it. Either way, at this time, didn't have any sons. We know later he has a son. I will get to that later on in, in the law. But either way, their presence among men made them vulnerable to mistreatment. So they get there, they begin to pull the water out of the well, put it in troughs for their animals to feed. Well, they do that, and a bunch of these shepherds come by, and look at what verse 17 says. And the shepherds came and drove them away. He said, why would they do that? What a mean, mean people. Listen, we think of shepherds in a really happy, nice way. Like, we think of shepherds, you think, oh, they take care of animals, they're animal lovers. They must be the nicest people in the world. They love animals. Shepherds were like the equivalent of like the 1920 
sailor. You didn't let your daughter around him. That's who they, I'm serious, that's who they were. Shepherds were considered one of the lowliest reputations that you could have in that time period. They were considered scoundrels. They couldn't get any other type of work. They were not considered to be good people. That's why the whole idea that God picks the group he's going to announce the birth of Christ to, shepherds, is quite comical. They weren't even reputable. If you're going to pick someone to be your announcement people, you wouldn't have picked shepherds. Yeah, oh, we found the Messiah. We found him. You found the Messiah, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Like last week, last week you're out there and you said you saw three sons up there. I don't believe anything you say, man. That's how it was. So the shepherds, this is not reputable people. So these guys come up and, and they were notably very lazy. These guys come up and, and they notice, man, we got all these troughs full of water. We don't have to do a thing. We chase off these ladies and we can feed our flocks and they can go do the work again. Listen, I wish that was not the case in how people viewed women, how men viewed women, and how they treated women. That's how it was back then. If you're a woman, you got, you, got cob- <laughs> you got stomped. That's just how people treated you. They treated you as lesser, and they didn't care about you. you know, that's why when people talk about Christianity putting women down because we talk about submission, we talk about roles and responsibilities because the Bible talks about those things, or why we don't have women pastors because the Bible says you can't, you don't. It's not putting women down. Listen, Christianity elevated the place of a woman, and it has done so everywhere it goes. You can't have any type of a structure without having roles and responsibilities. I have found it interesting that God tells a husband to do the thing that's hardest for him. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. When I, you, know, you, get, you get a young couple in front of you, and we want to get married. All right, okay. All right, young man, you, know, you want to get married. Do you understand what marriage is about? Oh, yes, I love her, and she's wonderful. No, 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 you're ready to die. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to give up all your hopes and dreams so that you can serve and minister to your wife and your children? All the things you want to do so you can serve and minister to them. That's what it means to be a man. That goes counter to how we are. We don't die. We survive. You know, we don't sacrifice. We do our own thing. We climb mountains. In the same token, God gave women a role that was hard to do. Women submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord. I have found women to be way more effective at managing all the affairs that go on in the, in, in the family. I am not necessarily the best person at those things. You know, Bevel comes to me and she goes, sweetie, you know, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but Micah has, you know, or one of the kids has no jeans anymore, no, no long pants. I'm like, oh, it's Florida, wear shorts. I, I just don't even think about these things. She's always got tabs on all those things. I have found that many times it's not, God, doesn't, God didn't call men because we're more capable. He called us because it's harder to do. We have to trust him for it, to be a leader, to not be lazy. In the same way God calls you ladies to do something that's not not easy to do, to trust somebody else, to follow someone else's lead. To say, I'm going to yoke in with this guy, this knucklehead, and, and I'm going to, we're going to be in this for better or for worse, whatever. I'm going to trust the Lord. He's going to work on the knucklehead. That's the truth, though. It's not easy for you to do. That's what I found. And as a result... When we trust the Lord, we do things his way, we both get sanctified. We both become more like he wants us to be. We grow in the areas that are our struggles. And we find order in the home. We find things the way they're supposed to be. Now, that's not popular, but it's truth. Freedom isn't getting to do whatever you want. Freedom isn't going and running wild and leaving all your responsibilities behind. No, that's being a child. When you grow up, you learn you have to stop doing those things. It's not about just going off into the wilderness and giving my life to the wind and see what the wind takes me. Yeah, I know where the wind will take you. Poor. (laughs) Broke. (laughs) No roof over your head. That's where it will take you. God calls us to be responsible, to give up our lives. Anyway, rant off. 
And the shepherds came and drove them away. They totally just mistreated them. We got free water here. We'll drive them off. But look what Moses does. Moses stood up and helped them. And then he watered their flock. He came and he fed them. He did what a real man does. He defends, he protects, and he serves. Listen, you trying to find a good wife? You need to be a good man. Trying to find a good wife, you need to be a good man. And this is how you need to roll. Protect and serve. I see guys all the time. They're lazy. They're not spiritual. They they don't have leadership in their own life. They can't take responsibility, but they expect that the godliest woman in the world, God's picked them for for them. And I think there's no way in the world they're going to date you. There's no way in the world they're going to marry you because they're a godly person and they're looking for a godly man of which you are not. So if you want to find, same thing for you ladies. If you're a single lady here tonight, I want a godly man. Be a godly woman then because that's what a godly man's going to be attracted to. You know, love at first sight when I saw Beverly. She's beautiful. I immediately fell head over heels for her. I wanted to marry her, okay? But I was a punk. And as such, she didn't have two seconds for me in that way. We were friends, but certainly didn't think of me that way at all. As we maintained our friendship over the years, I grew in the Lord. She was already saved, and and she was growing in the Lord. Do you know what attracted us to each other? I know for me specifically, I, I remember I would go over her house and, you know, we would, she was the one with a car. So, you know, she'd come pick us up and then, you know, she'd go inside or whatever. And we'd wait in the living room while she got changed or something so we could go do whatever it is we're going to do or go where we're going to go. And I would see an open Bible on the coffee table. And I knew it was her. I got to know over time that's hers. That image still sticks with me because that, that's, that's where I really fell in love with her. Because I knew that's the type of wife I wanted. I wanted a woman who loved Jesus more than she'd ever loved me. A woman who loved the word that we could talk about those things. If you want a, a godly man, you've got to be a godly woman then. Because a godly man is going to be looking for a woman who loves those things. Moses stood up and he protected them. He helped them. The word helped means he rescued them. And then he watered their flock. He served them. Now the sight of an Egyptian who carried himself regally and spoke fluently, mightily, uh, would have been sufficient to back these shepherds down. The Egyptians were the most powerful nation in this region of the world and they made frequent military forays into that area. So the last thing a group of shepherds wanted was trouble with any Egyptian patrols coming through. So they, I imagine, probably didn't take too much to back down. And I don't know how large their flock was, but this would have taken time for Moses to water all of them. And you know, Moses might have misjudged God's timing, but that doesn't mean he was a bad man. It doesn't mean he possessed no leadership qualities. His servant's heart was a good start to the work that God would continue to do. I often tell people, I say, well, I feel called to to ministry. I say, that's great. That's wonderful. I I know that Peter and Paul could probably use help cleaning up tonight because that's where it starts. Greg Laurie tells a story of how he would take any job that Pastor Chuck would offer him. He was the janitor. He was hired as the janitor. And so, you know, I'd come up and be like, hey, we need somebody to go teach a Bible study three hours from there. And, you know, all these other guys, these great men of God, like Mike McIntosh and all these other guys look around and be like, I'm not driving three miles. And Greg would be like, I'll go, I'll go, you know. He didn't care. He just, whatever God wanted me to do, I'll do it. And then what happened? God called him to different things. I remember when I was a young man, 18, 19, 20 years old, and and I just wanted to serve. It didn't matter to me what I did. I cleaned the church. That's what I did. Me and Beverly, that was our ministry when, you know, we were engaged and we were getting close to getting married. We'd go and clean the church every Saturday night. Clean the church. I taught junior high, which is the hardest group of kids I've ever taught in my life. <laughs> and it was like only three of them. And that's really not even true because two of them were sleeping. <laughs> so it was like one and a half. But I, I, I just was happy. You know, but David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. 
A servant's heart is where it starts, you know? Not that I'm anything special. I'm just saying, I, I know that, that I didn't care about, and I know that's what I look for in other people because that's what my pastor looked for, and that's what his pastor looked for, and, and that's the, all the way down through the line because it's what God looks for. It looks for people who have servant hearts, that they don't care what they do. They just want to serve. Well, verse 18, the girls come home. When they came to real their father, he said, how is it that you're come so soon today? Did you, you know, did you shirk your duties? What's going on here? You know, I know it takes longer to water the flocks than that. And they said, well, listen, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. So it shows that Moses was very clearly in his speech and his dress. He looked like an Egyptian still. So they said, an Egyptian delivered us, rescued us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. <laughs> now, like any good dad would do when you meet a guy like that, why didn't you bring him home? <laughs> I've got seven of you I've got to marry off. Surely one of you thought he was cute. Where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Women and men generally avoided each other in these cultures, but in this case, the rule of hospitality should have overruled that cultural norm. Their father, of course, didn't want to offend such a generous person, especially if he was an Egyptian. And so he sends his daughters back to invite Moses home. And, and in that, I, I believe that's another indicator that he probably either had no sons at this time or they were very young at this point. So verse 21, so Moses came there and he ate bread, we know. We, I mean, it doesn't say that, but he did. But then it mentions that Moses was content to dwell with the man. The word content means so much more than that. It means to agree or to accept a business proposition. So apparently while they were having dinner, Ruel said, and I don't know if, how much of Moses' story he told, I don't know. But he just said, you know what, man? This would be nice if my flocks could get home safely this early every day. Would you be my shepherd? And Moses agreed to those terms. So upon meeting Moses, he offered him the opportunity to live in his camp if he took care of his flock. And Moses accepted. And so it says that he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter, and she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. So we don't know if the marriage was part of the arrangement between Ruel and Moses, or if Moses simply grew to love Zipporah, and they asked to be married later on. Arranged marriages were the norm in that time period, and having a work agreement go with a marriage is actually not uncommon. So it's very likely that Moses was kind of unsure. He kind of upped the ante and said, well, I got a girl I can give you. And they got married, and that's very likely what could have happened. Well, they got married, and she bare him a son. And he called his name Gershom. Gershom means sojourner or expelled one. And you know, it's interesting. He, Moses is the writer of Exodus, and he gives us his own commentary of why he did that. For he said, I have been a stranger or a foreigner in a foreign land. Interesting, the name Gershom, I think, recalls both lives of Moses. Because when he would see the boy, he would be reminded of what he'd lost in Egypt, and then he'd be reminded of the new life he'd found in the desert. Now, that's not exactly fair to the child, but names held far greater meaning in that day than in our day. A lot of names that were given were not exactly given in love or given in because times were good, and let's name the child after our good times. Oftentimes, the child's name reflected bad times. And again, while that may not be fair, that's just how the culture was. Well, we leave Moses now, and in verse 23, we return back to the situation in Egypt. And it says, it came to pass in the process of time, many days is what that means. We know 40 years took place between verse 22 and chapter 3, verse 1. But we don't know when the king of Egypt dies here, unless you figure out which one in the chronology of history it is. But it says, it came to pass after many days that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel sighed or groaned by reason of their slavery, their bondage. And then they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage. Listen, when there's a change in power, it's very normal for people to hope things will change for their better and for their benefit. But nothing changed for Israel with the change of power. A new Pharaoh came into play, and their situation was exactly the same. 
The reality that their pain would have no end in sight brings them to a place of despair. And so it says, finally, they cry out. The word there means to physically cry out in agony, to shout for help. I don't know if you've ever been so broken and so shattered in your life that you've verbally, audibly cried out to God or you've shouted to God for help, but this is where they were at. They were finally brought to the end of themselves and they cried out in desperation for help. And God heard, verse 24, and God heard their groanings and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. God acknowledged them. God accepted them. Hmm. I'm so glad that God never forgets. You say, well, wait a second, Will. It says that God remembered here. What does that mean? Well, that word is, it's almost like God trying to communicate in our language an action that he takes. For example, this morning, someone said, hey, Pastor Will, could you announce that Pastor Saeed was released because a lot of people have been praying for this? I forgot. I meant to. Like they said, I thought, oh, good idea. And I completely forgot. So to those of you who don't know and have been praying, there was a prisoner swap between our country and Iran. And uh, Pastor Saeed was one of the four Americans that were released um, in that prisoner swap. I don't think he's in the States yet, but he's on his way home to see his wife and kids. And that's a huge answer to prayer. I know many of you have been praying for that. That's how we forget and remember. But I think the reason God used that word is because I didn't take action this morning, but now I remembered, and now I'm taking action now. And and what God uses that is he uses that word to show that he's going to start working actively in that situation again. And God says the reason he does that is because he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would go down to Egypt, but then they would be brought out of their slavery and they would be given a home in the promised land. And so God, upon hearing their cries, he begins now to set in motion the events that will bring that promise to pass. Upon actively observing Israel's situation, his heart is moved with compassion. That's what it says God looked. God always sees. But the idea is, remember when God, the Bible says that the cry of Sodom had come up to heaven and he went down to inspect it. It's not that God doesn't see it. It's just that God wants there to be full proof that no one could ever question his actions, that they would, you didn't even know, you didn't, how did we know you knew about all the details down there? Well, God came and he looked upon the suffering of the children of Israel and it broke his heart and he had compassion, he had respect to them. He acknowledged them, he accepted their cry and he began to work on their behalf. When we get to the end of chapter two, the stage is set. Israel needs a deliverer. And God wants to deliver. But will Moses be up to that task when the time is right? Would you turn to Micah 6 with me? I want to close with this verse in Micah 6. You probably have heard the verse many times. Maybe you've memorized it. But in Micah 6 verse 8, there's a a beautiful passage. You might have it on your fridge or your wall somewhere. But Micah, in response to God's pleading with his people who have rejected him and have gone astray, they keep trying to please God with all their rituals, their, their religious activities. And Micah tells them, God never asked for that. And he says in verse 8 of Micah chapter 6, he says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? And here it is, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I've had a lot of people tell me that God has a call in their life. Well, if that's true, then this will be your heart. This will be your heart, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God will take whatever, whatever position you have for me, Whatever you want from me, that's what I'll do. And I'll do it with love in my heart. Uh, My character is more important than my call. My conduct, my attitude towards people is more important than whatever great call I have. Your call will never be evidenced by your great talent. It'll be shown in a heart that looks up, that trusts God's timing, and walks humbly with him. And if this isn't your heart, 
then let God break you so it can be, because then you can fulfill his call for your life. I remember early on when I was, we planted the church in Sanford, and I was saying, you know, I'm looking for leaders, I'm looking for people to to raise up, to disciple and train, and I remember I I called up Pastor Gibb, and I said to him, you know, what do you look for? What what are some of the telltale signs? And, And he said, well, he said, I just look for people who love the Lord, who want to serve him, and they have humble hearts. And they want, a, they want a relationship with me that, that we can lock arms together and we'll love one another. And therefore, whatever comes our way, we have a disagreement or whatever, that the love that will bind us together will keep us moving forward no matter what. And I took that to heart. That was what I looked for. I had a lot of talented people come through that church. People that came with all their callings and all their excitement and all the bells and whistles of their talents. But you know, the people that really lasted and became the best leaders we had were the people that just were faithful, humble. Their walks were right with the Lord. And, and they served him. I'm not saying they weren't talented. I'm just saying those were the things that made them stand out. You know, anytime we ordained an elder, we would have people and we would say, you know, if, if you believe in this man, you've seen his ministry and you testify that everything I'm saying about him is true, that when we're ordaining him right now as an elder, a pastor in this church, you know, a leader in this church, that you recognize that that is a work God has already done, please stand. And there was never a hesitation in the congregation because they knew it. Those people didn't need to go out and go, I'm called, I've got a mighty call of God on me. Didn't have to because it was plain as day in their character and their love and their humble heart. That's what a leader's like because that's a leader that God can fill. So anyway, God's good, right? Let's all stand. Lord, it's so hard to fault Moses because we all want to be great. (laughs) I don't think anybody wants to be, you know, bottom of the barrel. But Lord, so often that desire to be great is from selfish ambition and not from godly ambition. Lord, we want to be ambitious for you. We want to take back the kingdom. We want to knock down hell gates. We want to be part of your plan. We want to be on the front lines, Lord. Whatever it is you want me to do, I want to give my life away for you. But Lord, we want all those ambitions to be tempered or just by a humble heart that says, Lord, I will be wherever you want me to be. So Lord, teach us to be servants, to have servants' hearts. Lord, not just to look left and right and say, well, this will work. This will work. I see how it all will be planned out. But Lord, to look up to you and with humble hearts say, God, here I am. Take me, I'm yours. What do you want me to do? Because Lord, I know then (laughs) my life and in the lives of every man and woman who's here tonight, Lord, you'll take it. You will take us up on that offer and you will fill us and you will use us for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. That's what we want, Lord. So fill us, we pray tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God's primary concern for our life is not in what we can do for him. His primary concern is for our hearts to be His, for us to know Him and love Him and have a relationship with Him. God only uses those who have been broken and molded, humbled for the sake of being used by God. This may be hard, but it is worth it to know God loves us and uses us. Should you have questions about anything or would like prayer concerning today's message or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.